A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Hello and welcome back to the Experiential Theology podcast, one of many podcasts named Experiential Theology. I'm here with uh, Juan Torres. My name is Ben. Today we're going to do our uh, Christmas episode and I want to talk about Christmas and kenosis and possibly about kenosismus as a, another way to think of this holiday. We're going to be talking about the doctrine of the incarnation and because you, if you're in a church community this time of year, you'll probably hear about incarnation and what that means. And it, there's a lot of things that it can mean, and there's a lot of features of it that we want to think about. So we're going to start today um, by, uh, by looking at some of the main passages that describe this concept of incarnation or a good place to start and, uh, and, close, and we'll try to describe what kenosis means as well as a feature of incarnation that's actually somewhat controversial. Okay, Juan, you want to get us started? Sure. I'm going to read from the prison epistle from Paul to the Philippians. It is chapter 1, 27 through 213. Here we go. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, 
but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so that's the first reading. And then the second reading, it's a, a short summary of this, I suppose. It's from 2 Corinthians 8. eight I'll start with 8.6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Well, that's a great scripture, but I guess I was in the wrong chapter. Uh, let's try this again. So here we go. Uh, great scripture, Paul. Love it. Uh, eight, nine, here it is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. End of the readings. Excellent. So we want to talk about the theme of incarnation, which is which is the, the theological theme of the, of the Christmas holiday and the for any liturgical people of their liturgical calendars. And where are we going to find uh, in the Bible some kind of guidance on what incarnation could mean or should mean? And I think these are the, the best places to look where we've looked. So in 2 Corinthians 8, we have this phrase, though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. I think that's a wonderful um, single sentence description of what incarnation should mean or could mean uh, for us. And in the Philippians passage, uh, the central section that you read is, um, I believe that it's thought to be an ancient Christian song that's probably even older than, than the letter itself it's paul is quoting back to them something that they, they probably already know this is not his construction here um and it's 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 similar it's the it reads the same way of though he was rich he became poor for your sake mm -hmm. and but it's in a bit of a different language it says um, but he emptied himself taking the form of a slave being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself even to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in, every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. So this is a longer version of, of presumably the same thing. Uh, brought to our attention by the same Paul. Now, let me say, uh, let me say something right, right up front about the second, about the, the Philippians um, poem. So we, we, when we're at Christmas time, we're often thinking of 
Jesus being born and Jesus being born being a mag a magnificent thing. And often we have a sort of a metaphysical reason for that. We think that God or some like we it's somehow okay, babies are born every day. And it's an it's each time it's amazing, but that's not why we have the Christmas holiday. There's something else going on here. Uh, but it, in this Philippians poem, it, it immediately connects it to Easter. So we have Christmas and Easter all wrapped up in, in uh, two verses. Um, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So we have the we have the whole church calendar in about two verses here in, in many ways. And so what, what this, I guess what I want to say here is that, and this is a theme that I got from Peter Forsyth, is that the real incarnation, when we're talking about incarnation as a Christian idea, it's not just about the birth of Jesus. Uh, the incarnation in, in many ways is ongoing and it, it, it is magnified over time. And that as he grows in obedience to his father, as Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and as he uh, turns his face towards Jerusalem uh, and is crucified, the incarnation just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, do you have any, any thoughts about what we've read here? Well, I think uh, you mentioned kenosis being the, the central idea here, right? I mean, this is where the debates uh, lie. And people have thought of kenosis in different ways. So this idea of the self-emptying of the pre-existent figure of Christ here, right? So definitely Paul believed in the pre-existence of Christ. I mean, that's unquestionable to my mind. He absolutely believed that. And here we see this belief fleshed out. So what does it mean, kenosis, self-emptying? Uh, I've heard many different theories and scholars arguing back and forth. Uh, some of them believe that kenosis means that Jesus lays aside the divine privileges, right? So he's still God, he's still divine, but he basically decides that he's not gonna exercise the divine prerogative while he's living and teaching and just during his earthly ministry, as they like to say, right? So a lot of people believe that's what it means. Uh, other people believe that here, this kenosis passage, um, kind of turning the passage on its head, the idea that it is precisely by emptying himself of the divine prerogative that Jesus shows us what God truly is like. So they sound very similar, but also very different. Have you come across these two ideas and what's your take? Yeah. So first of all, I'm, I'm not as confident about pre-existence. So I think we should talk about pre-existence from the experiential theology perspective. Uh, okay. So first of all, none of the biblical authors were there in the beginning and, and none of them claim to have been there in the beginning. Uh, so when a biblical author says that Jesus sort of pre-existed his earthly life or puts him deep in the deep past as um, 
something is going on there. And I think what's going on there is that they have an experience uh, that the, the early church is built upon this experience of the exalted Jesus, that this, there's this man who they appreciated, who was crucified, who they claim was raised to life again by their God, and who was essentially exalted, meaning that God commanded them to worship this Jesus, that the one, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay, so if that much is true, then you start to ask questions like, how could this be? And that's, and, the, and one of the answers to that question, to the how can this be question is, oh, he must have been there in the ages past all along. If someone is so important to God's plan, if somebody can be raised to the level of we worship him because God told us to worship him, then we start to that, that's where this idea, I think, comes from of Jesus existing before, before being born in Bethlehem. So, so it's, a, it's, not the, it's not a belief in itself that other things depend on. It's, it's something that depends on other things. This concept of preexistence depends on a need to sort of magnify what we think about Jesus, given what we've experienced of him. Uh, but in the modern world, in modern Christianity, many of us will just take that for granted because like, oh, we have always believed that he pre-existed. Um, but, but that didn't come out, that didn't come from nowhere. There's a reason for that belief. And it wasn't that anybody was there to write it down. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's justified by, well, I don't, whether it's justified or not, that's another question, but it rests upon this this experienced salvation and this experienced exaltation. And it's an inference from that exaltation of Christ, from an experienced exaltation of Christ, an inference backwards. So, so with that in mind, like, and I, I think this is really important because theology at Christmas time almost always just starts with, yeah, there was Jesus, he was God, and then he was born as a, as a baby. Isn't that weird? Isn't that amazing? Like, yeah, okay, but let's just, Let's just start with at the beginning where it's like, well, why do you think that he was there before anyway? Like, what does it even mean for God to be born as a baby? It's, it's very, um, there's a lot, it's a very slippery fish. There's a lot going on here. And I think that the, the foundation, the experiential foundation for a belief in preexistence is a good place to start. Yeah, I think it's always good to go back to the experiential angle on these things it's easy to get caught up in metaphysical arguments and claims and whatnot. And I would say that whereas maybe before I will be more uh, critical of people with heavily metaphysical, traditional Christology and so forth. At this point, I'm kind of willing to, to almost give them a pass because ultimately, what matters is not so much the Christology that you espouse or adhere to, but what the Christology does with you and for you. So to me, that's, I would say, my deepest conviction. But uh, yes, I, I affirm everything that you say. It, it makes sense. It's kind of like when the apostles are quoting uh, passages, quote unquote, demonstrating the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures and so forth. 
when you go back and read the scripture, you're like, well, this, this is not really demonstrating these things. <laughs> but what they are doing is they are reading the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, in light of what they are experiencing in the Christ event through the spirit. And so I think we do the same thing with theology. So if all these things with Christ Jesus happen and they're true and we are experiencing them, what must this mean for God? If God is truly defined by the Christ event in this way, then this must have always been true, right? Because yes. God doesn't change. And, and, and this is how the chain reaction of theological complications takes place. But yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, the, the, it's almost like um, there's a parallel between eschatology, like the, the doctrines of the last things, and protology, the doctrines of the first things. Mm -hmm. They both kind of come from the same place. They come mm -hmm. from our experience mm -hmm. in the present and our interpretation mm -hmm. of the present mm -hmm. and, and our inference forward and backwards from the present. So, so it's the present that's really the source of all this pre-existent uh, sentiments and yeah so so this this leads to another another topic here um so christmas is is sort of awe inspiring for many people and mysterious for others because it it touches the um mystery upon a mystery that is essentially incarnation theology built upon trinitarian theology <laughs> mm -hmm. built upon who knows what so so okay so god becomes a baby like we've got to do better than that this is very this is very ambiguous and uh and very tricky to um to parse out clearly but as at, a, at the level of method and i was just rereading uh, something by hr mcintosh sure we have a we have a trinitarian theology we've talked about that on here before um but in many ways our christology has to come first we can't start with the trinity and then come up with the christology and then come up with the ministry of jesus and how, what it means we have to go the other way around you've got to we've got to start with with our experience of jesus with what happened in his life and death um and then go back into like well what does this mean for jesus and god and then if that is the case what does this mean for being god at the level of the trinity so so i don't want to let complications with the doctrine of the trinity slow us down when it comes to interpreting the incarnation because really we need to get the incarnation sorted out first and the doctrine of the Trinity sorted out second, although historically it was the other way around. Um, if we if we want to say they were sorted out at all, yeah. So, so so it's it's Christmas in, in many ways is is almost like the last the last chapter in the book rather than the first chapter. So it's it's strange because it comes to us first as the beginning of the new testament or the beginning of the gospel of luke but it's it's really last on the list of of things we would figure out <laughs> and describe because first of all we have to meet jesus the man uh, we have to walk with him through his ministry we've got to 
wrestle with his choices that lead to his death. And we need to experience his resurrection and, and exaltation uh, through the Holy Spirit today. We have to, we have to come to some, some sort of contemporaneity with Christ, as, as Kierkegaard would say. And then we can start fussing about how could God become a baby? Because up, until all that has happened, it frankly doesn't matter. It's just shuffling around the concepts that don't make sense. Yeah. And I think it's it's easy to forget when we're looking at this passage that Paul didn't remind them of this poem to maybe feed their metaphysical speculations, but he's actually very practical. He wants the Philippians to be more like Christ, which means what? That they're going to humble themselves, that they're going to look for the interests of others, that they're going to consider others as better than themselves, that they're going to be serving one another, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, all to the glory of God. So, yeah, it's easy to forget that Paul had a practical purpose in all this. As, I think Paul was definitely the first Christian theologian, but uh, he, we would have to say he was the first practical theologian. He's not really trying to do a dogmatics here. He's just finding a way to ground his exhortations in, in the gospel of Christ. And what is the gospel of Christ for Paul? The gospel of Christ for Paul doesn't have a nativity scene, right? He doesn't really talk about the earthly ministry of Jesus a whole lot. He talks about his death above everything else, his death as the epitome of his faithfulness to the call of God. And, and he thinks about the ramifications for those who will follow him. And he always reminds himself and his hearers that this story here of the Christ event is something that we have to embody. We can't just profess or preach, we have to embody this. We really do. I think in, in reform circles, they make a big deal about talking about how the gospel is a proclamation of the finished work of Christ, which is true. But I think where they err is that they almost imply that to, to call people to embody this gospel is a contradiction of terms, not to Paul. Paul really does believe that we are supposed to imitate Christ, that we are to follow this pattern in our relationships. And I think that's really crucial. What do you make of this? <laughs> yeah, well, not only does Paul think that, according to Paul, that's what God thinks too. That was the whole point of exalting Jesus so that we could all see what God wants and what God is willing to empower on our behalf, um, what it means to, to be driven by the spirit of God in the same way as the crucified and exalted Jesus of Nazareth. Um, mm -hmm. There's a, when we look back at the life of Jesus, especially at Christmas, I think Christmas is a time where this is hard to see clearly in, in church communities. Um, we look back, we see God incarnate, whatever the words God and incarnate happen to mean to us. And we are often 
impressed by that. Um, but if we were there alongside Jesus of Nazareth, what we would see is um, essentially an ordinary man uh, who, who manifests this character of God, perhaps non-explicitly. And, and it's non-explicit because we may think ourselves to be uh, godly people and find Jesus very frustrating and very offensive to us, to us, because we can encounter the character of God without it being properly labeled for us, right? And so we can react to God and God's character without knowing that that's what's happening at that time. And this is what's happening with Jesus, is that we have this man, and I'll just stop at a man for the moment, because most of what's valuable is right there. We have a human being who's fully empowered by the spirit of God. And that is very polarizing because it brings the character of God through the power of the spirit into the presence, uh, it, to the attention of everybody who's watching. Um, yeah. So when, but in the, in the modern world or after many years of Christianity existing, we can actually hide these facts through a kind of um, veneration of, of Jesus that's inappropriate, where we're venerating his Godhead and not venerating his obedience. Mm. Where, we're, where we're saying, isn't it amazing how divine he is and how he's divine in human form? Isn't that amazing? It's like, no, what's amazing is that he received the spirit without measure and didn't resist the spirit and was obedient to the spirit and was transformed by the spirit and driven by the spirit. That's amazing. And guess what? That's also possible for each of us. <laughs> and it's, it's not possible for me to become the God man, divine and human. That's not on the agenda. Nobody's offering that in their gospel proclamation. Um, so if we dwell on that, we're dwelling on something that doesn't actually threaten us, that doesn't actually require anything of us. Hmm. But if we are dwelling on the man, Jesus, driven by the Spirit of God, um, a superconductor of the Spirit of God, if you, to make a physics analogy, where everyone else has resistance to the Spirit, hmm. Hmm. that's the miracle. That's the amazing thing. And that is also completely invisible at Christmas when we have an infant. What is an infant driven by the spirit of God even supposed to mean? No crying he made, like whatever. <laughs> he can cry. That's not, not spiritual. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> yeah. So I guess this is a very uh, grinchy uh, episode. I'm, I apologize for that. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm always, I'm always sort of motivated to try to keep my eyes on on what i think is the actual source of the treasure of the good news um and to try to divert attention a little bit from from the various distractions that that are available yeah i mean it's it's really easy for traditional liturgies to get in the way right it's 
it's it's cute, right? All the the Christmas pageant and everything, and the the real Christmas message is much more radical. Yeah. So the let's talk about the maybe let's talk about the concept of um, solidarity. So there's a a powerful incarnational theme of solidarity. The idea that God subjected God's self to our troubles and our suffering. Uh, and I'm sure you have something to say about this being a Moltman reader, but, and I think that that's definitely there, but it's, I think it's more powerful in the life and death of Jesus than it is in his birth. In order for that to be the theme of the birth, we have to first establish sort of the, the divine pre-existing state of Jesus and then contrast that with his state as a baby. And mm -hmm. that, and that sort of leads us to marvel. Mm -hmm. But what should really, what we should really marvel at is, is Jesus and who he associates with and who he um, considers worthy of his time and attention and love and and his sort of adult decisions led mm -hmm. by the spirit of god leading to actual solidarity leading to human to human solidarity as well uh, because that's something that we could actually imitate by the grace of god and the power of the spirit uh, it, we can't actually imitate um, being divine and then being born a human that's not really on our agenda of possible things we could imitate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the gospel of Mark, I mean, the earliest gospel, right? Doesn't mention baby Jesus at all. And it's not a deficiency. He's focused on his ministry, his life, you know, being a follower of John the Baptist, his baptism, reception of the spirit, and what he accomplished being empowered by the spirit, right? So yeah, I I have to agree with you 100%. It's, again, it's really easy for a lot of these traditional categories, festivals, liturgies to kind of get in the way. Yeah, it's, it's really easy, especially for, you know, high church liturgies and denominations and bodies and whatnot. Because you go from, Christ Jesus to baby Jesus, from baby Jesus to the Virgin Mary, from the Virgin Mary to the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. And it just kind of goes on and on. It gets out of hand very quickly. Yeah, it's, it's taking sin as a practical, perhaps even systematic, um, volitional thing and often literally making it into a non thing <laughs> uh, and then, and then making it metaphysical and, and drawing attention to um, let's say original sin has something that everybody is guilty of regardless of what they do. And then coming up with theories about how that's transmitted and then using virgin birth to overcome that. It's like, okay, we're a long way away from love your neighbor as yourself. 
we've wandered a long way <laughs> into the into the intangible, into the metaphysical. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Well, one one thing I wanted to say as well is let's so having having all those qualifications in place, let's just say that you believe in the pre-existent Christ and that you have the sense that Jesus was not only obedient to the spirit, but also had some kind of pre-existence and was sent uh, and born. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we have to make a decision about canonic theology or canonic Christology, sort of yes or no. And I want to recommend that uh, we say yes, <laughs> if, if we must, uh, if we're, if this is the boat we're in. So why is that? Um, so canonic theology is basically the, it, it's, it's, uh, the word is kenosis. It's a Greek word. It's connected to the word emptied himself in, um, in second, sorry, in Philippians two, seven, that he emptied himself. So if you want to have a pre-existent Christ becoming a human, something's, something's got to give. Uh, and we add, and one of the, and we're going to have one of two situations, more or less, we're either going to have a real human who really is ignorant and really is weak and really needs the power of the spirit to, to live and to, and to obey God and to do the work of God, or you're going to have a hybrid, a divine and human being that has direct access to all of those powers and all of that knowledge. And that must have two wills, like a divine will and a human will in the same person and, and so on. And I think that that second option is really the most popular one among people. But almost all the authors that I've come to appreciate on reflection will wholeheartedly go the, the first route, the canonic route, which is to say that Jesus really was ignorant. He really was powerless. He really was a human. He didn't have uh, a sort of break glass in case of emergency button ready to press. <laughs> um, he really depended on the Holy Spirit. And that when we imitate him, we really are doing something that can be done by the power of the Spirit. It has been done by the man, Jesus Christ. So, so this emptying is a genuine self-limitation. Um, and I think, I think the motivation for this is, is to appreciate that at the practical level, most of the treasures of the Christian faith seem to me to reside in this relationship between the man, Jesus Christ, and his father through the spirit of God. That's where all the good stuff sort of happens. And uh, if you, and, and that stuff sort of gets washed out and erased through a series of metaphysical distractions, unless you let Jesus really be a man. And, um, and that's what canonicism accomplishes if you have a pre-existence to account for as well. It sort of bridges those two together. Mm-hmm, yeah. I've been doing more and more traditional metaphysical reading that I think in the in the past I wouldn't even bother. And so 
Yeah, I mean, I, I understand to a lot of people, it's, it's, it's really fun, almost exhilarating all this metaphysical, traditional theologizing. But to me, I mean, just talking about the man Christ Jesus, right? He says, why do you call me Lord and Lord and not do what I say? I mean, where does Jesus rebuke people for having an improper Christology? Right? He really doesn't want us to be doers of the word. I think it's fine to be worshipers of the son of God. Like we're bound to, I guess, by orthodoxy or whatnot. It's fine. But we have to be disciples of Christ. We have to be disciples of Christ. That's the message of the New Testament. We need to be disciples of Christ. And we, find, we, we have to find a way to, I guess, sort of balance uh, the demands of the gospel with the gifts of the gospel. And I think that's what we're all trying to do. Some struggling more than others. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I have been going to a Catholic church lately. I grew up Catholic. I was part of an Anglican church for three years. But I mean, honestly, I'm Protestant to the core. I can kind of go through the motions and I can appreciate much of it. But at the end of the day, I just can never get rid of this feeling, even through the mass or the Eucharist or whatnot. Like, wow. People are putting a whole, people are putting a lot of stock in this. I hope they understand and realize that it's not just about going through the motions here, right? Or even reciting the creed and so forth. It's, it's a lot more than that. But I understand, again, I understand why the church and the churches as an institution have to have something like this. Even evangelical churches, I mean, they, they don't get a free pass. I mean, they're, they're kind of doing their own version and maybe it's even a worse version. Usually, yeah. <laughs> Can we criticize the evangelical churches? <laughs> no, we could, but... Uh, yeah yeah i mean we we have to remember that christ being lord demands that we be slaves right ultimately i mean he's the lord we're the slaves just like he humbled himself to be a slave and, and do the will of god to the point of death Discipleship is more or less that idea that we are slaves, if you will, of the crucified, doing his will, taking his interests seriously, his views on society, the poor, and so forth. And that is the challenge of Jesus for us. And going through religious motions is just not going to cut it, I think. This is something that we should all know at this point. But...
Well, maybe we can conclude by talking about uh, the sense of hope that Christmas involves and that the celebration of, of the birth of Christ involves. So I think all Christians would agree that the life of Christ, which began with his birth, is, the, is really the turning point in the relation between God and the world and the thing that we celebrate and the thing that we struggle to understand and the thing we struggle to, to shape our lives around is this, what, what has been done? What has God done in Christ? This is what we want to know and understand and receive with Thanksgiving. And, and uh, it's, maybe it's wrong to say that it began with the birth of Christ because we want to account for, we want to account for the work of God in history prior to that, particularly through the people that Jesus was born into through, through the, through the people um, through the Jewish people descri as described in, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures in the old Testament and, and through God's relation to Israel and their knowledge of God's character um, is revealed through their struggles and their hopes and the disappointments. So, so I, I feel like I've been fairly negative towards, uh, towards Christmas, this podcast so far, but, but it is something to celebrate that the revelation of God in Christ has begun this is something worth celebrating through the birth of Christ. This is what I'm excited about. And um, I'm less excited about the metaphysics of God becoming a human. What I'm excited about is the beginning of the revelation of God in Christ. Something new has happened that finally someone has been born who will be given the spirit of God without any measure, without restriction who will be fully obedient, who will transparently manifest the character of God to us. Um, th this is exciting. This is, this, is worth, this is worth celebrating. Now, what I think is a little funny is that our, our sort of collection of Christmas carols and Christmas liturgies, and there's a lot about this good news is coming that God is going to redeem God is going to fix, God is going to heal. And all that is true, but the way in which that healing comes is super surprising and super disturbing, honestly. That, yeah, that, that revelation and salvation, they, they go together. And that, um, and that the, the, the cross, which is coming, the death of Christ, is a revelation of the depth of the problem that that the thanks that's given at christmas that god has come to save is a thanks given in ignorance of how big the problem even is right there's a there's an ignorance in the christmas um in the christmas sort of message of yay god is going to fix something but but not knowing how deep that problem actually goes and that the the disease is is much is very severe <laughs> and the cure uh if we the cure it almost seems worse than the disease the the death of christ so so that, yeah so that's an interesting aspect of it that's an interesting aspect as well yeah well it just so happens that this is a very universalistic passage as well uh, a lot of uh, theologians 
who argue for universal salvation. This is one of their favorite passages. Uh, verse 10 and 11 says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I think that's pretty cool. And this, this whole passage is actually based more or less on the suffering servant passages in Isaiah 42 and so forth. So the suffering servant, his mission to bring the nations to God and how Jesus fulfills that vision. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing the nations to God. Uh, at the moment of writing, Jesus is bringing the nations to God through the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so if you want to have a big picture brought about through this text then the big picture is that god is doing something cosmic he is spreading the message of salvation to all nations and and jesus christ is going to be acknowledged as lord by everybody and i think that's amazing yeah that that's kind of reminds me of this other theme that i wanted to maybe finish with is is the this unveiling of the goodness of god and uh, we've talked a lot about obedience and there's sort of a severity to what we've been talking about. Like Jesus was obedient. And like, I think I find that the, this obedience is, is very important. Um, but it's not a blind obedience to who knows who for what knows what's purpose. <laughs> it's a, it's not, it's not just the, the zealousness or the zeal. It's not a zeal without knowledge. This obedience that Jesus has to his father, the obedience that we're trying to imitate isn't just blind obedience and what is the what is the missing piece which is actually present it's the goodness of god is that jesus um uh hr mcintosh one of the authors who i've worked on he says he says something along these lines that jesus has has essentially spoiled god for us now is that after we get to know jesus Whatever God there there may be, needs to be at least as good as the God represented by Jesus. <laughs> we can't accept anything less after afterwards. That Jesus has raised the bar for the goodness of God and what God is like, and that is also worth celebrating. Is that it's not so clear from the birth of a baby. Um one baby among many <laughs> that, that this revelation has taken place yet right but as he grows and as he lives and as he uh, obeys the spirit of god the goodness of god is made manifest through his life and the magnetism of jesus is his manifestation of the goodness of god that's what people are drawn to that's also what people are driven away by is that the goodness of God drives many of us away because we want God to be worse than that. Um, mm. So, mm -hmm. so that, so, so as, as a, as a celebration of the, of this unveiling of a deeper goodness of God through the man, Jesus Christ, um, who Paul or the author in Colossians describes as um, the icon or our idol of God. So we're not supposed to worship idols. Why? Because they don't represent God properly. We do worship Jesus, 
precisely because he does represent God properly. He faithfully transmits the goodness of God to us. And, and that begins with a birth. And so, and so for that, we're thankful. Yes. Somebody said that God is Christ-like and in him there is no Christ-likeness at all. Playing with the words of 1 John. So, yep, that right. is a revelation. God is Christ-like. And like you said, Jesus has shown us the Father, like he said to Philip. And now we know what God is like. And whenever we encounter depictions that stray from that, then we know that that is not of God, ultimately. Yes, and I, and I guess what I'm I guess what I'm struck by to circle back to the beginning is that this revelation of the goodness of God in Christ it just stands on its own through our encounter with 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 Jesus through the gospels and through and through the obedience of those who are led by his spirit today um, it doesn't actually require this doctrine of the preexistence it doesn't require uh, rejecting kenosis or, 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 or otherwise building some kind of metaphysics into the Christology. Uh, we can just see the goodness of God in the man, Jesus Christ. Um, and that leads us to believe these other things, not, the, not the other way around. Uh, and so it's important to keep that goodness in the forefront. Yeah. And, and then take everything else as a gift if we're able to believe it. Excellent. Well, I want to wish everyone listening a Merry Christmas. I don't know if you'll be going to church or not, but you know, you can always keep Christ in your heart. And uh, a happy New Year season as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.